Hi, welcome to Fizz Gig. I'm Wendy Althwaite and I admit to being fascinated by fizz, the taste, the tingle and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod on the last Friday of every month, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So, here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today, we're going to look at the evolution of champagne marketing. Regular fizz giggers will remember that when effervescent wine was first produced in Champagne, it was by pan-European traders who'd picked up post-French Revolution vineyards and wines on the cheap to trade with their other products. Some were cloth merchants, some were barrel merchants, some were wine merchants. You see the theme here. They were merchants, not aristocrats. But everyone loves hobnobbing with a noble, and the mere fact that many French aristocrats had lost both their lands and their heads during the French Revolution in 1789 didn't mean they couldn't lend a bit of grandeur to the glass. Okay, so the aristocracy wasn't making fizzy champagne themselves, but there was a sheen to be gleaned from the association of them glugging the stuff. Particularly during the Belle Epoque, that's 1871 to 1914, when society became more fluid and the parties became more adventurous. At first, the glamour by association was by listing patrons. So, for example, in 1890, Laurent Perrier advertised that their champagne was favoured by, among others, Leopold II of Belgium, George I of Greece, Alfred, Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Goethe, Margaret Cambridge, Marchioness of Cambridge, and John Lambton, 3rd Earl of Durham. Surely that was enough to make their champagne sparkle a little brighter? In truth, although champagne was presented as a luxury product for the nobility, given the shortage of aristocrats in post-revolution France, most champagne drinkers were middle class. After all, if you've topped your toffs, or most of them anyway, who else can buy your fizz? So marketing champagne was aimed at appealing to the snobbery of the bourgeoisie. In short, anyone who could afford it could drink champagne, but they guzzled it because it was an aristocratic luxury. Royal patronage was particularly prized, so Heidsig rode around Moscow on a striking white stallion and attracted the patronage of the Russian Tsar. And allegedly, Claude Moet convinced Madame de Pompadour, Louis XIV's mistress, that champagne was the only wine that could be drunk and still leave women beautiful. Gradually, champagne producers worked their way from their tradesmen's entrance to the front entrance of the great houses of Europe. But an impressive heritage by association with aristocratic patrons is not quite the same as being an aristocrat oneself. Remember that in the 18th century, champagne was not known generically as champagne, 
Rather, each product was known by its brand name, which was the name of the merchant. So, how to make that more aristocratic? Marry in. An impoverished aristocratic family would marry their son to a wealthy merchant's daughter with a large dowry. And that's exactly what the Clicquots did. Young Mademoiselle Clicquot was married to the Comte de Chevigny. He got the cash, they got the cachet. Champagne producers with aristocratic connections immediately changed the appearance of their brand. Almost all labels went gold. They were illustrated with coats of arms and other heraldic devices, which after all are the original logos, and moreover, they often referred to titles. And if you're going to claim an aristocratic association, make it count. Which is what Tatanger still does. Even today, Tatanger, or Tattinger to the Brits, record on their website the must-read legend of the Comte de Champagne, that is the Count of Champagne to you and me, from the 16th century is a marvellous narrative of an assumed reality combined with the storyteller's imagination and poetry. Its relevance today is not so much down to its historical accuracy, it's more an emotional tale with new adaptations which continue to flourish to this day. In other words, all of this is fake news, but it resonates. The flamboyant legend of Thibaut IV, le chansonnier, is very much connected to the unique Comte de Champagne blend by Tatinger. Sorry? The website then goes on to explain that Thibaut IV, better known to you and me by the arguably much more impressive title of Theobald I of Navarre, was a conqueror and poet who went crusading in 1239 and was rumoured to have brought back the ancestor of the Chardonnay grape, although subsequent inconvenient DNA research by the University of California at Davis has found this to be untrue. The website promises the Tatinger legend begins here. But, and I don't want to prick Tatinger's bubble here, does it? First, it's not clear what the Comte de Champagne has to do with Tatinger. It's unlikely that Tatinger has any genetic link with the Comte de Champagne, although since Danny Dyer was found to be the descendant of Plantagenet kings, I discount nothing. The Tatangers did, however, buy a house after the First World War that had once been owned by Theobald. That's the extent of the link. They started off as wine merchants in 1734, not nobles, and over half a century later, they bought a house. The only relevance of the Comte de Champagne, therefore, appears to be that he has Champagne in his title, several hundred years before any of the fizzy stuff was made. But counts count, and so, so what if he had nothing to do with either the family or the drink? Undeterred, today, Tatinger's flagship wine is called Comte de Champagne. Well, when you find a winning formula, you repeat it. So when Tatinger planted in England, the venture was called Domaine Evremonde. Charles de Saint-Evremonde at least lived at the time when fizzy champagne was produced. Just. He died in 1703, 
The first champagne fizz was produced in 1690s. He's hailed by Tatanger as the first true ambassador for champagne at the court of Charles II. His political writings having offended in France, he fled to England, where Charles II made him the governor of Duck Island in the lake of St James's Park in London. It's a slightly odd choice of name for a sparkling wine estate. There's no doubt that Charles de Saint-Evremont was a bit of a food and wine snob. He's reputed to have particularly enjoyed the wines of Ai and declared, if you ask which of these wines I prefer, without allowing me to stray to the taste trends inspired by the false connoisseurs, I would say to you that the good wine of Ai is the most natural of all wines, the healthiest and the most purified of any odour of terroir. The false connoisseurs were those favouring fizzy champagne. Saint-Evremont liked his wines flat. He encouraged the court of Charles II to drink still wines from champagne, not a bubble between them. So, an odd choice for a sparkling wine domain. But he was at least for the right time. And there aren't many Frenchmen from then who are buried in Westminster Abbey. In Poet's Corner, just behind Shakespeare, if you're looking for him. So Champagne was promoted by association with the nobility as a luxury product, and more recently, with the new nobility. Of course, I mean celebrities, and I'll tell you about them later. Promoting Champagne as the drink of kings did no harm at all. In 1876, Louis Rodre was asked by the slightly cautious Alexander II of Russia to supply him with a Champagne specifically for him. It was to be made only with the finest grapes sourced only from Louis Rodera's own vineyards. It should be in a clear bottle, so that he could see if it had been poisoned, with a flat bottom, so that no explosives could be packed in the punt. And so, Cristal was created for him. He wasn't particularly paranoid. Half of the previous 12 Tsars had been assassinated, and in due course... Alexander II was too, but not through his champagne. In 1879, a revolutionary threw a bomb at him in St. Petersburg. And long after his death, in 1945, Cristal was made available to the public as the Tsar's choice. It's not particularly unusual for a champagne house's flagship brand to be associated with a famous person after their death. Notwithstanding Winston Churchill dying in 1965, a decade later, Paul Roger launched Cuvée Winston Churchill. But at least he actually drank Paul Roger while he was alive. Marilyn Monroe had a champagne named after her, with which she had no association whatsoever, 50 years after her death. And some famous people have never existed at all, but are still useful. Think of James Bond and Bollinger. But back to the 19th century. As well as nobles, Champagne got into politics. So, labels memorialised political events, such as the Franco-Russian alliance of 1893, the tennis court oath, which marked the 100-year anniversary of the French Revolution. If politics were tricky, just imagine an advertising campaign aimed both at Remainers and Brexiteers today, you could simply produce different labels for different folk. Flattering images of Marie Antoinette for royalists, glorious revolution images for others. 
And as World War I approached, more militaristic labels appeared. Soldiers, who, like chameleons, would change their uniform colour depending on their destination country, and customised flags. French patriots favoured Joan of Arc on the label. In a more sinister tone, during the Dreyfus Affair, one champagne house even released a champagne anti-juif to ride the wave of anti-Semitism in France. And as European empires expanded, champagnes marked the occasion. Champagne d'Orient, Champagne of India, Grand Vin Imperial, featuring nearly naked natives, appeared. During the French Belle Époque, the peaceful decades between 1871 and 1914, Champagne became a mass-market luxury and featured in the paintings of Manet, Cézanne and Toulouse-Lautrec and the novels of Goethe, Zola and Pushkin. These days, Champagne houses still choose painters or designers to produce limited-edition redesigns. For example, Jeff Koons designed a limited-edition of Dom Perignon rosé bottles. In the Belle Epoque, Champagne was guzzled with gusto in nightclubs and a regular feature at Maxime and the Folie Bergère. It acquired a rather racy reputation. The effervescence efficiently gets alcohol into the bloodstream, so it was thought to get you squiffy quickly. And in such a wild and exciting time, Paris parted. And to grab the attention, nothing beats a good stunt. At the Exposition Universelle de Paris in 1878, the founder of Mercier, Eugène Mercier, built the world's largest wine cask, buying several narrow Parisian streets and tearing down the houses just to get the cask through. The Eiffel Tower won the competition, but Mercier sold a lot of fizz. And by the 19th century, Champagne had become a social adjunct. One Brit complained in 1882, We cannot open a railway, launch a vessel, inaugurate a public edifice, start a newspaper, entertain a distinguished foreigner, invite a politician to favour us with his views on things in general, celebrate an anniversary, or specifically appeal on behalf of a benevolent institution without a banquet and hence without the aid of champagne. And it was true. New traditions evolved of launching ships and, in particular, planes, with champagne. And champagne was incorporated into all the social rituals, births, deaths and marriages, so hatches, patches and dispatches. So you'd offer fiancé champagne to newly engaged couples and baby champagne to, well, the parents, of course, not the baby. And it was soon a feature of sporting and leisure activities, and it still is. Imagine Ascot or Wimbledon without fizz. It's unthinkable. Moët et Chandon offered their champagne to the winners of Formula One Grand Prix events, and in 1967, the winning driver of Le Mans started the tradition of drivers spraying the crowd and each other. Others prefer a chewy. But in the main, champagne has been seen as an occasion drink and a luxury. But in the face of falling sales, Champagne decided to change that. In 2019, a generic Champagne campaign ran with the tagline Réservé à tous les occasions, meaning suitable for any occasion, to appeal to the younger demographic, the over 25s. The images used were much less glamorous, featuring, for example, bus stops, 
which of course is where all 25-year-olds are found. This generic campaign has been decried by some specific champagne houses as a desacralization of the champagne movement and a devaluation of the champagne category. It's a far cry from the original effort to associate the fizz with aristocrats' luxury and special occasions. Time will tell whether it's a special occasion or an any occasion drink. I'm just relieved that no one's forcing you to drink it in a bus stop. Champagnes have often been targeted specifically at women. The sweeter champagnes were thought to be the most suitable. Laurent Perrier emphasised how appealing they were to women by listing their female patrons, for example, the Countess of Dudley, the wife of the ninth Earl of Stamford. Labels appealed to women by showing images of romantic love, cherubs, marriage, baptisms, all the things that were thought to be important to them. In modern times, as fizz giggers will remember, women are still targeted, but this time with skinny champagne. It's always been claimed that champagne has health benefits. From the 19th century, it was known as a boisson hygienique, medicinal champagne and a grand vin de santé. The health claims have not abated. We're often told that fizz can increase your sex drive without impairing performance. It can improve your heart health by its antioxidants, preventing blood clots, heart disease and stroke. Its proteins can apparently improve your short-term memory. The University of Columbia discovered this and the University of Reading suggests three glasses a week to be optimal. It can boost your mood, apparently because of its magnesium, potassium and zinc. It has fewer calories than other wines, only 80 calories rather than 120 a glass. It can lower your risk of diabetes by 13% according to a 2009 Canadian study and a glass of two prevents dementia according to research from Pittsburgh. I remain sceptical. But there's no doubt that such claims help sell fizz. But just not quite as much as celebrity endorsement. I promised I'd come back to this. So, now that aristocratic patronage is passé, celebrity endorsement is the way forward. The beautiful Scarlett Johansson is pictured with an erupting bottle of Meute Chandon balanced on her thigh. She said, I'm honoured to have been chosen as the Meute Chandon ambassador and to make history with the brand as the first celebrity face of champagne. Hmm. Arguably, all those listed patrons beat her to it. Traditional champagne houses were taken by surprise by their popularity with hip-hop artists and rappers. And what do the hip-hop pop? Dom Perignon with its special fluorescent labels for clubs, complete with sparklers fizzing from the cork. Many chose Le Rodra's Cristal. It featured in their lyrics and in their music videos. That was until Cristal's manager, when asked about Cristal's popularity with these artists, replied, What can we do? We can't forbid people from buying it. Jay-Z immediately boycotted it and encouraged others to do the same. Not since Queen's Killer Queen kept Moet and Chandon in her pretty cabinet had references in lyrics to a specific champagne brand been cut so quickly. Jay-Z launched his own champagne brand, Armand de Brignac, in a striking Ace of Spades gold shiny bottle which has been very popular. Following suit, 50 Cent launched his champagne, Le Chemin du Roi, 
And as the Blanc de Blanc costs $1,000 per bottle, that's a nice diversification for 50 cent. And almost everyone's in on the act. Champagne Roger Daltrey is not owned by the Who, but was released to celebrate their 50th anniversary. Woohoo! So, anyone for pudding? This year is a leap year, and as the 29th of February fast approaches, ladies may be contemplating making a decent proposal. Legend has it that in the 5th century, St Bridget, then an Irish nun, complained to St Patrick that women had to wait too long for their suitors to propose. So St Patrick suggested that women themselves could propose. But only every four years. And if they were going to do the deed, they were expected to wear either breeches or a scarlet petticoat to warn of their intention. The suggestion that Queen Margaret of Scotland legislated to allow women to propose on a leap year is false. No such law appears on the statute books, and it's unlikely, given that she died when she was eight years old, that she would have thought about such things. But if an unwilling man doesn't run away as soon as he sees his scarlet-petticoated beloved approach, but instead receives the proposal and then refuses it, convention requires him to give her 12 pairs of gloves, or in Finland, enough cloth to make a skirt. So ladies, this Saturday, if you'd like a fiancé, or indeed a new skirt, pop the question, then pop the cork. So there we have it, Fizzerati. We've explored how champagne is spun. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next Friday when we'll discuss one of my favourite doughty champagne dames, Verve Clicquot. Until then, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin! <laughs>